following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. Hey, I want to talk to you this morning about God's grace and just how amazing God's grace is. Grace is something, it's not a word we use really often, but it is an enormous fingerprint of God. When you look at what God does in our life, it's all about grace. And when you discover grace, you fall in love with God's grace, and you kind of go on a journey to want to discover more about God's grace. The Apostle Paul was a great example. He was a religious man, thought he loved God, very misdirected. But one day he found out about God's grace, really God's grace, and he spent the rest of his life trying and searching to discover more dimensions of God's grace. And as time went on in the life of the Apostle Paul, he started to discover more and more. Almost like if you had a, a small lake and you were one of these, uh, like a tracker, somebody who's looking for things in nature, walking around the shoreline of the, uh, of the lake, Picture it this way. Paul is walking around this little lake and he's discovering more things about God's grace. And he begins to, dis- to, to learn that it's not even a lake after all. It's an unlimited ocean. And he can't even search them all. Even though he's discovering radical dimensions of God's grace, there are so many things that he can't truly search them all. And I would say that's the same for our life. This side of heaven, we won't know everything about the unsearchable riches of God or the boundless riches of his grace, but we should commit to the journey of discovery. And if you're like me, you you learn more things all the time about God's grace. Are you guys discovering more things about God's grace? I mean, when when you accept the Lord, you go, wow, he actually forgives and takes us back. That's really cool. And as you're Going down the road more, you discover more things about his grace and other dimensions of his grace. And there's such a beauty about the profound dimensions, the many, many dimensions of God's grace. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so if you have your Bible with you, Ephesians chapter 3, you can track along. We're going to be looking at this. There's some really cool things that come up in this passage Uh, I've been loving this, going through this book of Ephesians, because there's been some radical disclosure. God is disclosing some really deep things on a spiritual level, and to me, uh, they are essential tools. As a believer, we're all those people walking around that lake, discovering the riches in Christ. And there's been things along the way that have been explosive, that have been very empowering uh, in the life of a believer, to empower you to be who God's calling you and I to be. So it's really great stuff. Uh, he starts out in, in Ephesians 3, verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. I want to stop right there because Paul is a guy, if you ask most theologians, they'd say Paul gets it more than anybody. Paul, Paul experiences the kingdom of God in such amazing ways. I mean, the guy is used to write a third of the New Testament. He started out as a Christian killer, and he's writing a third of the New Testament. Uh, he's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's uh, proclaiming God's message. He's doing everything you can imagine to do on a spiritual level on steroids, okay? God's using him in a big, mighty, and powerful way. But I think it's important to look at the way Paul 
looks at himself. Because I would suggest the way Paul looks at himself has a whole lot to do with why God uses him the way he does. There's a, there's a connect here. Let's, let's look at this. He's calling himself a servant. It's where we get the word deacon from, really, in the Greek, which really comes from the concept of a, somebody literally serving you waiting on tables. Paul, the super apostle, says, yeah, I'm really, if you really want to know, I'm, I'm like a waiter. I'm like a deacon. And you're like, cleaning your ears. Paul, you're the super apostle. You mean you're like this, this radical chosen instrument of God that he's pouring out all this power. He's like, well, actually, I'm, I'm a waiter, really. I'm a waiter for the glory of God. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a servant. And he goes on to say that I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. Now, this is not some, um, he's not sitting here diminishing himself or thinking too lowly of himself. He's saying, look, you want to be honest with you. Um, I realized where I'm from. I realized who I am. And the only reason that God is doing profound things in his life is not because of me, it's despite of me. It's all his grace. This is how rich the, the richness of Christ is. This is how big God's grace is. He's starting out on this, on this level here, wondering why this guy even qualifies to be a super apostle, and it's because of his humility. And I would suggest that the same is true for our lives, that in our lives, God is looking at humility as the number one key component, I believe, in our lives for God to do greater things in our lives. Um, when we look in the Bible at Satan being cast down from the heavenlies, the Bible is very clear on the reason. It says pride was found in him. Pride. Pride. Well, I don't need this and I deserve this. And this kind of uh, this, uh, uprising on the inside of who we are and what we deserve and what we think of ourselves. Pride. The Bible says pride was in the devil and God immediately saw that pride and cast him down. There's no place for pride in the presence of the living God. They can't coexist together. The all-powerful, mighty, living, powerful God and pride. And so when it was manifest in the devil, boom, he was cast down like lightning. That's what Jesus says. Cast down right away. And yet along the journey, we see God taking people and raising them up and doing great things because of their profound humility. A guy like Gideon, for example, God's like, I'm about to do a, a, a war sequence in, that's going to go down in history, but I'm only going to use 300 guys, Gideon, instead of 20,000. I'm going to use 300. And uh, Gideon, I'm going to choose you to lead an army. And his first response is like, oh, Lord, you must have the wrong guy. <laughs> See, I'm the smallest dude from the smallest families, from the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. You can't seriously mean me. And God's like, yes, that's exactly why I want to use you, Gideon, because you're saying you can't mean me. God's like, I can work with that. I can shape and mold that. This profound humility in Gideon's life. Moses was the same way. He was chosen. He's like, Lord, not me. I, I stutter. I can't even talk right. I can't be your guy. The Lord's like, no, you're my guy. Because you don't think you can, that's why you are. Israel the same way. Why Israel? Little, little small country. Why is God going to do this amazing global uh, revelation of who he is through this little country, this least likely to succeed? And God's like, well, that's why I'm going to do it, because they're the least likely. Without me, without me, they can't do it. But all things are possible with God. But this humility is huge. It's enormous. Pride, on the other hand, pride destroys things. Pride wrecks things. Pride destroys 
an anointing. We see with Saul in the Old Testament, he was a king. He started out great. He started to get really prideful at the end, and it was like a train wreck at the end of his life. Pride, it destroys things. Pride will destroy friendships. Pride will destroy marriages. Pride will destroy ministries. And we don't talk about it a lot, but I'm just telling you that that manifestation of pride, we have to check all the time for that. If you want God to pour out in your life, if you want God to do more than he's ever done before, if you want God to raise you up, and I trust you're here in God's house this morning because you have a love for God and you want to get in on the deeper things of his kingdom, I think that's why we gather to give him honor and praise and to grow in, in, in our understanding and, and, and to have God's power poured out in our lives for a greater display of what he wants to do. Humility is a key component. Pride is something we always have to check ourselves for because it does wreck things by nature satan cast down marriages break relationships break because of pride um paul says look i'm, I'm less than the least okay i just want i'm a, I'm a waiter okay if you want to know why god's raising the dead through me i don't know i wash feet over here and all of a sudden i raise the dead over here i i don't know but i keep washing feet and i keep raising the dead i'm a waiter and god's like i like that i can use that Pride, the Bible says, it comes before the fall. We saw that with Satan. We saw that with people through the Bible. God disposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, this, the, the proud he pushes away, but the humble he gives grace. He pours out more of his riches, uh, not necessarily financially, but his grace, his, fi- his uh, unsearchable riches on those who are humble. That's what it's saying, that God disposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're told in the word that if we humble ourselves in his sight, that he will actually lift us up. This is God doing this stuff. See, people try to lift themselves up. That's what pride does. Try to puff themselves up or think more highly than they should. That's what, uh, pride is a self-inflicted elevation. I deserve, I am better. Look at me. It's all these manifestations of self. But when we're humble and we humble ourselves in God's sight, God lifts us up. And Paul is a case study of somebody like that. Um, God promotes the humble. If we humble ourselves in his sight, he will lift us up. And I would suggest to us this morning, even though we're going to move on with this passage, this, guys, is a prerequisite. If you want to get in on deeper things of God, if you want to be used by God, if you are seriously interested in like, no, God, I believe you're a living God and I want you to use me. I want you to use me as a vessel. I want you to work through me like he has historically through his people. This is a prerequisite that won't go away. Checking the pride issue and, and remaining humble is a key component. So if you're a note taker today on some of these unsearchable riches, uh, the first point this morning is that humility is the key to our promotability. Humility is the key to our... Pro- There's no getting around getting promoted in God's kingdom without this humility. Again, Jesus the Christ washing feet but casting out demons and raising the dead. And you're like, does that coexist? Yeah, that's why it coexists. There's this profound humility. Uh, when, when they're in the upper room praying in one accord, they're in this humble place of prayer and dependence on God. And God says, I like that. I like that you're humble enough to ask me and be dependent on me. And that's where God can move the, the greatest. Um, and, and this is what it goes on to say in verse eight. This is the, the reason that God's grace was given to him. He says, to preach to the Gentiles... The boundless, the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, 
which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So this humble servant turns around and gets to share the boundless riches of Christ. Some translations say unsearchable because like someone walking around that little lake trying to discover, you find out it's an ocean. And the grace is so immense and so immeasurable that you keep trying to discover and you love the discoveries along the way, but at the end of the day, you're like, there are so many aspects to God's grace. It's really immeasurable. It's immense. It's absolutely immense. He's discovering all these things along the way. And I want to ask you, in your life, when you think about the riches in Christ Jesus, the unsearchable riches, the the, the, the boundless riches, the, the grace that he's poured out or the grace that you have seen displayed, the things that you have seen that have become part of who you are, they've become part of your testimony, you might think like, what are the top three things that you have seen? What are the top three things that you would recognize? If you were to make a list of the unsearchable riches of God's grace and what he does and who he is and by his nature, how amazing he is, what are the top few things you would write down? Because here's the beauty, we probably wouldn't all write the top three things down, and nobody would be wrong. It would simply be that some of us in this room have discovered certain aspects of his grace walking around that ocean, and others are walking the other way, and they're discovering things as well. And we're all right, because they're all in the word of God, and they're all his profound riches. Uh, It's really amazing. I don't know what they are. Most of us would start out with, okay, well, forgiveness, when I think of the riches in Christ, well, the first amazing thing I, I think he did is he forgave me and he took me back. That was really cool. That's a, rich, uh, a, riches, a richness that we all have in common. And then some of you would go on to say, well, he not only took me back, he, he made my eternity secure. He gave me heaven as a guarantee. That's what the Bible says, takes away sins and gives us eternity. That's great. I have a confidence about my future that I can rest assured in my future. These are some of the riches as the as they unfold. The next would be that, well, he, he actually poured out his Holy Spirit so that I don't have to live in my own strength anymore. I live my life in and through the Holy Spirit now. These are beautiful dimensions as they're unfolded through God's order, through his word. But here's where it gets a little different. If we started to go to the next level, of the riches that you've discovered in Christ Jesus, what those riches are. We would have some different answers. Some of you would say, well, the main thing is he changed me. How many of you guys would say that's one of the top things, that he changed you? Yes, yeah, some, not all, but he, he changed me. He, he, I knew who I was, and I'm not who I'm going to be, but I'm not who I used to be. All I can tell you is he changed me. Maybe took away some nature, maybe took away some aspects of of, of the way we lived and what we did, but literally God did it. He changed me. So to you, one of the riches in Christ is that God changes people. Literally, he changes people. And you're pretty fired up about that because you know it for a fact he changed you, so he changes people. And others would say, well, can I tell you something? God actually healed me. God actually healed me. And now maybe the person next to you might not be sharing that aspect of how they were healed, but others would say, no, God is a God who healed, and I'm here to tell you that. If you look at the early church, you would see all of these. Some people that followed Jesus got healed, and they started following the Savior. Some started out with their forgiveness. Ultimately, we all need the forgiveness through the Savior. That's the main event, right? But the reason they followed him is because he had the words for life. 
I think he's got the most truth. I've never heard truth like this. And people start following. For some, it was revelation. For some, they were healed. For some, they were delivered. But ultimately, we're all forgiven. But what are the big areas of riches? Uh, For some, it was peace. I know I was a guy who didn't have peace in my life. I moved out at a young age, 16 years old. By the time I was 22, I'm playing in rock bands with Marshall Stacks. I have a four-bedroom house with a pool and jacuzzi. I got a Corvette. I got a jet boat. I got motorcycles. I got stuff. I got stuff. I'm playing on stages. But zero, zero, zero peace in here. And on the outside, looking like, well, that's pretty dialed in for 22 or 23, isn't it? No. Zero. Zero. None. No peace. Why? Because one of the greatest riches that I've discovered in Christ is that he is the prince of peace. Amen? He's the prince of peace. And I let people know that because that's my experience with Jesus the Savior. That's one of the boundless riches in Christ Jesus, that he is, in fact, the prince of peace. And people going through life searching for answers and peace, you're never going to find it until you, until you meet the Prince of Peace. And that's another disclosed one. Others are be love. You'd say, you know, I wouldn't even know what love is if it wasn't for Jesus. I mean, honestly, the way I was raised, what I've been through, I wouldn't know what love is. Introduce Jesus. And now I know what love is because love came to town. And that's one of your prime riches. If you were to share the riches that we have, the boundless riches, one of the first things you would say is, huh, I didn't know what love was before I met him. That's who he is by nature. Some of you would say, well, I prayed and God did things in my family that only God can do. And your testimony would be one of the main things about the boundless riches of Christ. You would say, God answers prayer and God changed my family. Um, I had a brother years ago who I knew I was going to get the call because I used to get calls at four in the morning with a wrecked car or something going on and partying and all kinds of stuff going on in his life. I'm like, Lord, he's going to die. My brother's going to die. I love my brother. He's going to die, God. Please, God. Crying out to God for my brother to come to faith. Somehow, God, wake him up. Please, God. And one day, my brother gets invited to a promise keepers rally. And he gives his life to Jesus. And now he's in the faith and he's teaching Bible studies and he's plugged in. And, and God, what, I, I'll tell you that God answers prayer. This is one of the riches. Are you guys getting the riches? Are you guys clocking with this? These are broad and they're very diverse. They're very different. But these are some of the boundless riches in Christ that we have. Um, calling is another one and purpose. People live in their life going, I just know I was made for something greater. I just don't understand what it is. Introduce Jesus and they've discovered a sense of calling and purpose and destiny because of Jesus, who he is. These are all discovered riches along the way and we could go on and on and on and on and the beauty is when you looked at the 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 posse of people following jesus and in the first century this whole entourage of people they were people that were blind on the side of the road that would say i got to tell you one thing he healed me and i'll tell everyone for the rest of my life he heals people amen that's who jesus is and others like the woman at the well who is basically chasing every relationship under the sun, looking for fulfillment and never found it. And Jesus prophesied to her and she runs back to the town and says, I gotta tell you about the one who's got every answer for everything, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And for the rest of her life, she's saying, I met the one who knows us all better than we know ourselves. And along the way, the tax collector who's trying to get ahead and make a living and do the right thing, and Jesus looks at him, he's like, 
Guys, I found fulfillment in Messiah that you're not going to find in money, that you're not going to find in this. And there's many people along the way. You look at all the different people that followed Jesus, and they all have different, they have one thing in common, Jesus the Savior. But the riches they discovered along the way, there was a beautiful variety. And I think that's important because that's exactly where this goes, that you and I also get to share the unsearchable riches of Christ. And when you put your best foot forward in sharing who Jesus, the Messiah, is, yes, he forgave you, absolutely. The cross is central. It's always central. It'll always be central. He died for the sins of the world. Therein lies the beauty. That's where we meet God. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. But what are the other riches? What is your list? What are those unsearchable riches? What are the boundless discoveries that you've begun to come to discover, to find out along the way? Because you and I, get to partner with God in sharing these riches. And this is the heart of God. That's our second point this morning, is that the riches I discover, they're meant to be shared. They're meant to be shared. And that's what I love about the body of Christ. We all have forgiveness in common. We all have eternity in common. We're all in a family of believers. But if we were to go through this room and start sharing the, 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 the top discoveries to you and the person next to you is not wrong and you're not wrong, but you don't have the same list, do you realize that? We don't have the same list. For some of you, he's the healer. For some of you, he's the one who gives peace. For some of you, he was the one who brought revelation. For some of you, he changed me on the inside. That's all I can tell you is he literally did surgery on this heart and changed me. For some of you, he's the provider. For some of you, and we all share these in common in some ways, but for some of you, they're the top of your list. I would encourage you, the riches that you discover are meant to be shared. Come to terms with the riches that God has shown you as you've walked around this ocean of God's boundless riches and which ones you've discovered. He let you discover those to give you life and so that you would share them. And the other part of this, and it says it in, in verse eight, Paul says, look, I, I, I'm committed to sharing the boundless riches. I, that's what I do. I go all over the place and I tell people about the riches, the boundless riches of Christ because that's what I'm committed to. I'm a servant of that. I go everywhere and just tell people about the riches of Christ. That's what I do. And he says, this is how I do it. I make it plain. Would you say that with me? Make it plain. One more time. Make it plain. This is in the word. Make it plain. When you share what God's done in your life, make it plain. Make it plain. It's so important to make it plain. It's so important to not say, you know, he hearkeneth unto me, thy sanctification unto the propitiation of the, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what, is, what does that mean? How many of you know that Jesus never said hearkeneth unto thee? How many of you know that? How many of you know that was 500 years ago they talked that way, not back in Jesus' day, right? Okay, make it plain. Make the reality of his riches plain. And therein lies the beauty. I mean, the Bible is full of plain stories. Jesus is talking to regular folk in regular communities around a sea or in a city square, breaking it down. He's not having this, you know, profound, you know, debate on some crazy level. He's like, this is true. And truth is easy. And truth is digestible. And truth can be simple. In fact, Einstein said that if you can't explain it to a 10-year-old, you don't know your topic very well. Isn't that good? To a 10-year-old. 
So anything we talk about God, his nature, and the riches, if we can't break it down really simple and raw like that, we're missing it. And Paul's like, look, I go all over the place. I talk to everybody about these unsearchable riches, these boundless riches in Christ, and there's many of them. I just, I just make it plain. He's encouraging us to do the same thing. Make it plain. Break it down. Simplify. In fact, John's gospel, the gospel of John, um, there's only about 750 words used in the entire gospel of John. And John wrote his gospel with the intention of being equivalent to about a, about a, uh, about a 10-year-old, third, fourth grade, simple Greek, common Greek. Nothing higher education, nothing that you had to go get a degree for to understand. And there's the beauty of John's gospel. It's so simple. You want to know who Jesus is? Let me make it plain. He's the way. Hmm. He's the way. You follow him. He's the way. He's the only way. He's the way. You want to know? Let me make it plain. He's the truth. You want to test what truth in the world is? Look at his, his words. Jesus, he's, he's the truth. He is the truth. He's the, he's the life. There is no life outside. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the door. He's the vine. Life comes from him. All these simple, just making it plain. Um, there's this really cool passage in the Bible. It was a point of revival. It's Nehemiah 8, 8, and I believe we have it for up here. They come back from Babylonian captivity. And they're at a time where people had a confused background. They come back and they discover a scroll and they pull it out. And the people were in a land of the Chaldeans, so they were speaking a kind of a different dialect. And they pull out a Hebrew scroll and they hand it over to Ezra and the elders, the leaders, and they pull it out. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. We discovered God's word that was buried in the rubble here. And all the people are gathered around and they do one thing to spark the revival. It says they make it plain. They opened it up and they make it plain. It says they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being said. And it talks about a radical revival that happened right at that point where Israel just turned around and went into this whole dimension of praise for the glory of God. Why? It was just simple. And I would encourage you, the riches in Christ that you've discovered along the way as you walk around this amazing lake of God's grace that you Come to terms with the top discoveries that you've made. And you do share them, the boundless riches like Paul does. And make them plain. Don't complicate it. We don't need to complicate it. Uh, it moves on in verse 10, and this is pretty, pretty amazing. It says, talking about God, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. This starts out saying, this is God's intent. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in times in my life and situations where I'm like, Lord, what is your intent with this? Have you ever found yourself in a situation like, God, what are you going to make out of this? Anybody? Right? Like, God, what do you, what's your intention here? How are you getting the glory out of this? What is your intention with this? And he's talking about God's intent. Now, this is important because it, like many things in Ephesians, it adds a whole new level of disclosure to, I think, a, a profound spiritual truth. It says this. It says that God's manifold wisdom is to be made known. Manifold wisdom. 
Now, that word manifold, we don't use that very often in our daily speaking. Uh, some of you men know that if you work on cars, gentlemen, ever heard of a manifold? Come on, show of hands. All right, ooh, ooh, come on, little horse. What does a manifold do? Manifolds generate horsepower. They get things flowing in an engine, and they get things flowing out of an engine. An intake manifold, an exhaust manifold, they come in many shapes, forms, and styles, but they're made to do one thing, get a better flow in and a better flow out to get a motor to generate more horsepower. The same is true with the church. There's a manifold wisdom of God that God wants to generate greater spiritual horsepower in the church through this manifold wisdom of God. We don't use this word manifold, but I love it. Uh, it literally means many folds. There's many folds of God's wisdom. Just as we said, the riches are unsearchable. There's so many different things that God's done in our lives. Yes, salvation and yes, eternity, but what about these other things? So many discoveries along the way. He's saying that there's this manifold wisdom of God, the many folds of God's wisdom. And in the Greek, it means the intricacy, the complexity, and the great beauty. There are many facets and dimensions of God's wisdom. And here's what it goes on to say. It says that he wants his manifold wisdom. This is God's intention. God's intention, laid out clear, is that God's manifold wisdom, the many facets of God's wisdom, the the diversity, the complexity, the numerous different things would be on, on display through the church, the many folds. A perfect example of this, and I, and I love this scripture, and we have it for up here, is in, is in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 people. They weren't apostles. There was 12 apostles. He sent out 70 people, people like us. He sent them out, and he said, listen, I want you to go to the towns, and I want you to preach that the kingdom of God has come. The Messiah is here, the kingdom of God. And go out, and when you do, go lay hands on the sick and preach the good news, cast out demons. Whatever you encounter, whatever comes your way, spiritually deal with it in the authority I gave you. Go and preach the good news. And by the way, these are some of the other things that will follow with you. And they come back from this little uh, expedition they went on. They all went to all these different towns. They all come back and go, Jesus, it was off the chart. You wouldn't believe what happened. I mean, we literally went places, Jesus, and we told demons to get out and they left and people were healed and, and we preached the good news like you said, but we cannot believe what happened. And Jesus responds to that when they come back. 70 people, 72 people come back and they are blown away with this, I can't believe what just happened. Just everything you said that would happen, happened, Jesus. And Jesus' response in verse 21 says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden, listen to this, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased with. This ties in exactly what we're talking about. God's manifold wisdom, God's intent was to put on a display through the church that that baffles the world. It's a kind of wisdom that the world doesn't even know. He's saying the wise and the learned people, they can't even clock with this thing. The people that are, you know, whether they're in the psychology or studying, you know, whatever science it might be, all they know there's a complexity they're still trying to learn more of. And God's like, yeah, I created that. (laughs) You want to get with me? I'll tell you what I created. But you're trying to discover what I created. God is the author and perfecter of, of our faith and our life. And these guys come back going, it was amazing. And Jesus is like, yes, 
My father revealed it to you, but he didn't reveal it to them. There's this manifold wisdom of God. It's not my wisdom or yours. You and I do not possess knowledge to change the world in and of ourselves. But God does. God's manifold wisdom, this is his intent, that his manifold wisdom would be on display, it says, through the church. The manifold wisdom, the many folds of God's wisdom, the many spiritual gifts, talents, and things that he's given all of us, this radical diversity that is manifold wisdom would be on display. What does that look like? It looks like a masterpiece, really. Sounds like an orchestra. If you listen close, you hear everything going on in there. It's a symphony for the glory of God. The manifold wisdom on display. And here's what's interesting about this. He says why he wants to do this. The fourth point this morning, before I forget, is let God display his manifold wisdom through you. That's his intent, to display his manifold wisdom through you. But this is amazing to me, and this this might surprise you, and I bet we don't normally think this way. Why does God want his manifold wisdom on display? It says, to make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, that's not talking about in heaven, in God's presence. The Bible talks about levels and layers of the heavenlies, really the invisible realm. You know, there's powers and principalities. Greater are the things that are unseen than the things that are seen, the Bible says. We're told it's not about flesh and blood, but about powers and principalities and rulers and high places. There's a spiritual invisible realm where there's mighty God and two-thirds of the angels and the devil and one-third of the fallen angels. They have a limited time and they're trying to reap as much havoc as they can. But that's a reality in the, in the realm around us. God's intent is that his manifold wisdom on display through you and I, through the church, both individually and collectively, would be on display so that it says for all to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the invisible realm gets to see this and the, uh, the invisible realm shudders. When believers in Jesus Christ know their place, when we know our gift, when we know our calling, when we know what God's anointed us to do, hell runs. The gates of hell cannot prevail. They will not prevail. But when believers don't know their place, when we don't know our gifting, when we don't know our anointing, when we don't know our calling, hell tends to have a heyday anyway because believers are immobilized in the fullness of what God has. This passage is saying that if we will let God put his manifold wisdom on display through us in all its diversity, in all its uniqueness on display, it says the powers and the principalities are going to see that. To me, I think there's an invisible proclamation going on. I think that's God's heart with this. I think to the proclamation to hell, literally to the hellish dominion around us. When a church has God's manifold wisdom on display, it shouts one big thing. Hell, you lost on the cross and you're losing day by day. That's the proclamation. When God's manifold wisdom is on display to his church, this is what it says. He said he wants it to be made known This is God's intent. This is scripture. God's intent is that the manifold wisdom, the many facets, the multi-capacities of his wisdom on display through us uniquely and differently, but on display, there is some display of this that we actually make this proclamation to the invisible realm. The invisible realm goes, oh no, that to hell you're lost on the cross and you're losing by the day by day. 
But to the believers, it's making another proclamation. You won on the cross and you are winning day by day. We are on the winning side. If you read the end of the book, if you skip to the back, you find out we're on the winning side. And you may have a setback along the way. Once in a while, we we seem like we suffer a setback, but know you're on the winning side. So we won at the cross and we're winning day by day. And when God's manifold wisdom is on display through us, the things that he's shown you, the discoveries along the way that you begin to put on display, this is when hell shudders. His intent is that we put it on display. And then this last section here, in fact, uh, this would be a good point for the time for the worship team to come up. This last section talks about how you and I approach God. And we talked a little about this last week because there was a scripture that started to reveal this, but through what Jesus did on the cross, the veil in the temple that separated the presence of God from everybody else was torn. And we looked at last week the way the temple was built. There was an outer court for the Gentiles, the women's court, the men. But no one could get to where God's presence was. It wasn't allowed. It wasn't obtainable. And through what Jesus did, we found out that we have access. That we have access to the presence of God, which is an amazing privilege, an amazing opportunity. But it says, talking about that access, it talks about our disposition on how we approach God. Now, this is interesting because... If we were to take a survey around the room, we would all probably have a different answer on how we approach God. Uh, It's kind of a novel concept. How do we approach the Almighty? I mean, He's the creator of heaven and earth. Obviously, we approach Him with a little bit of awe. We, We approach Him, the Bible says, with prayer and thanksgiving, right? You enter His courts with praise and thanksgiving. We should be thankful entering His presence. Some don't really know that they have the permission to actually come into God's presence because He is the creator of the universe and uh, what do you do with that, you know, that, that this, you know, nature of the powerful, all-knowing, always present, mighty God, all-knowing God, and people like us coming into his presence? Well, the Bible says, number one, you have access. You have access to God through what Jesus did. You have access to the creator, to the holy of holies, to where the high priest could only go once a year, only him, nobody else. You and I, through Jesus, have access. That's beautiful. But it also says that we go with bold and confident access is what Scripture is telling us. And in the Greek, what that really means, this boldness that it's talking about has the idea of freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Interesting. That you and I get to speak freely. You ever see a military situation where they go in front of the general and they sit there and they take orders and they say, sir, permission to speak freely? You guys ever seen that? And they can say, no, you don't have permission to speak freely. (laughs) Or they can say, go ahead, shoot, shoot straight with me. Okay, let's put the salute down here for a minute and let's, let's be real. And they get to speak freely. Well, guess what? You and I, this is saying, as far as the boldness and confidence we have to come before God is to speak freely to God to speak freely. And I don't know where everyone's at. Everyone's in a different place. I don't know about you, but I read the Psalms and I hear what David says to God. You guys ever read this? And I'm like, oops, I wouldn't say that, dude. You ever, you ever do that? I'm like, dude, you're gonna catch a whooping because you're talking to God too. Re-. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. God's like, no, I'm, don't worry, I'm okay with this. David's being real with me. He lands on the right side at the end of the Psalm, but he kind of goes off on his little tangent. He's just sharing his heart, brutally honest with God, and saying, God, I don't understand this. God, I'm mad about this. God, this is 
confusing to me, God. I need you because this is not good right now, God. Rather than going, keeping it under a lid and acting like everything is fine. There's a brutal honesty and transparency. How many of you know that God knows our heart and our request before we even ask him anyway? Do you think God's looking for a little connection on that? That he knows our hearts and he wants to hear our transparency? We are told here we don't only have access, but we have freedom to speak freely. And that is a privilege and that is an honor. In the movie The Apostle, Robert Duvall is kind of a life story similar to modern-day David, really. Does some great things for God, does some very dumb things, very foolish things. And yet he's out in a farmhouse, he's up in the attic, and he's yelling out to God. He's like, Jesus, I always called you Lord, you always called me Sonny. And I'm mad right now, God, I'm mad, ooh, I'm mad, Lord, help me right now, I'm mad. And he's on a tangent, he's on a tangent on a hot summer night up in an attic space where the neighbor calls over and says, who is that wild man in your house yelling over there? And, and the mom goes, it's just my son. He's talking to God. That's the way he does it. Okay, bye, <laughs> click, and hangs up the phone. He's having a tangent. But like David in the Old Testament, he's learned that he can speak freely. It's not disrespectful. Let's honor God. Let's not be ever disrespectful with the Almighty. But we can enter into his courts and we can be transparent and we can speak freely. I want to close with a story of a, of a man who came to Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. His son was a soldier. And his son, during a time of a battle, was very stressed out and he left his, left his post. He abandoned his post. And because he abandoned his post, he was sentenced to be killed by a firing squad. That was his sentence for abandoning his post. And the father came to Washington thinking, if there's some way I can get to talk to President Abraham Lincoln, some way I can present my case before him, then maybe, just maybe, my son could be pardoned. So he sat outside on a bench outside the gates of Washington, the White House. He could not get in. They wouldn't let him in. The guards wouldn't let him. And he sat out there day by day, just crying and praying, hoping he can get in. And nobody wanted to hear his story. And one day a little boy walks up and says, sir, what's wrong? And the man tells him, well, my son abandoned his post and he's going to be killed by a firing squad. And if there's any way I could get in to see President Abraham Lincoln, I, I think I might have a chance. And the little boy says, follow me. The little boy walks past the guards and much to the man's amazement, he can't believe this. And they go into an inner room. And in the inner room, President Abraham Lincoln is talking with his advisors and generals. And uh, he walks right past him, the little boy, and he jumps up on Abraham Lincoln's lap. And he says, Dad, I have a man here that needs to meet you. And so Abraham Lincoln in turns and listens to the man and the man pleads his case and Abraham Lincoln has compassion on the situation and gives the boy a presidential pardon. He had a presidential pardon for what he had done. And it's a beautiful snapshot of you and I that we too have access. We have access. We have access to speak freely. And also, you and I have received the presidential pardon as well. Would you agree with that? I know I have. And for us to go on and tell the story about sharing the presidential pardon that we've received in our life, we have access to go before God. We can speak freely for him. We can leave there and put his manifold wisdom on display. That's his intention. We can share the stories about his boundless riches and God's grace in ways that 
are going to change lives, especially the main things that he's shown you. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.